0: After two weeks or so of practicing insight meditation, you may be wondering when the insights are going to begin to happen. Well, the good news is that the most basic one already has guaranteed for everyone. And that is the insight or the understanding of how difficult It is to control our minds. Has anybody not seen how often the mind gets lost? How often we don't know what's going on? Don't underestimate the value of seeing this. Because most people in the world actually don't know this about their own minds. You go up to somebody on the street, does your mind wander? oh no, (laughs) I know what I'm doing. Because until we take the time to turn inward and actually observe what our minds are doing, we don't know. We're just living in a cloud of delusion. And when we don't see this aspect of our minds, then we also don't see the tremendous danger of it. And that's why this understanding about ourselves is so important and the mind is incredibly slippery and the Buddha talked of this you know, 2,500 years ago and it's as slippery now as it was then you know, we take a very simple object like the breath or the walking, it's not complicated it's just in, out in, out and yet you've seen, you know, we're with one breath or two breaths or three and then the mind is off and we're lost in some past or future, planning, worrying, anticipating, remembering. And what's really even more amazing than that is that what we habitually get lost in doesn't even have to be pleasant. (laughs) You know, so where's the payoff? (laughs) We can be spending a lot of time living in, reliving past hurts and arguments and disappointments. Just reliving past unpleasantnesses. Not only do we often just dwell in a lot of past things that may not be pleasant, often we're lost in thoughts that aren't even true. You know, where our mind is just making things up or anticipating things that haven't yet happened. But we think they might happen and then we get lost in them and start worrying about it. So there are a lot of tendencies that are not really that helpful. This first insight, the direct insight, so that we're not just kind of acknowledge this intellectually, but we're really seeing it over and over again in our own experience. That's the nature of insight that it's seeing directly. It begins to highlight the really the urgency of training our minds, the urgency of stabilizing awareness because in our lives, it's not only that we are lost in our thoughts, you know, or lost in certain feelings. Very often in our lives, we're also acting them out. And this is where the great danger of inattentiveness lies. You now in the recent events, September 11th, and also many other times in history, this is just the latest and most dramatic. We can see the tremendously destructive power of an untrained mind. Because when it's untrained, we do act out these thoughts and feelings of greed of hatred, of delusion. Buddha used very strong words to describe these states. Now in one of his discourses, which he called the Fire Sermon, he said, the mind is on fire, burning with greed, burning with hatred, burning with delusion. In our normal lives, we might read this and think, well, that's, That's a good metaphor. But really he's pointing to something much more. He's pointing to the huge potential for suffering that these states create. We normally don't see them to be the dangers that they are until they're acted out in these very dramatic and undeniable ways. the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. They have so much power as we have seen. You know, so it's not theoretical. All of these actions come out of the mind, come out of mind states, come out of these destructive forces. Yet the Buddha goes on to say that not even those closest to you, not even your mother or father, or whoever's most close, can benefit you as much as a mind that's well-trained. It's a very direct pointing to what we need to do. But in some ways, it goes counter to our popular culture, even popular spiritual culture or new age culture where so much of the emphasis is on following your heart. You know, we hear that a lot. Well, just follow your heart. I think we've seen by now, both in ourselves and others, that not everything in the heart is wise and kind and generous. You know, there are some things like that. But there's a lot else as well you know, within our heart there's anger there's fear, there's hatred, there's selfishness that's all in there too Ajahn Sumedho you know, who's the senior American western monk of the Thai forest tradition he had a wonderful phrase which encapsulates what's so important he said it's not a question of following your heart It's a question of training your heart. And that really captures the essence of what we need to do. We need to train our hearts in the wholesome qualities. So how do we do this? How do we undertake this training of our heart that is so essential? so essential for ourselves personally it's so essential for peace in the world it's the only way to have peace in the world the essence of the training is the recognition and steadying of a very simple quality of mind you know in in this talk and throughout the retreat often heart and mind are used synonymously You want to think of it as the heart-mind, not as two different things. There's one quality of this heart-mind that is the essence of the training, and that is the basic simplicity of what could be called bare attention or mindfulness or naked awareness or innate wakefulness. Now the different traditions all use different words to describe it, but it comes down to the same quality. It's called naked, or bare, because it's direct, it's unadorned. This quality of awareness, it's non-interfering. It's not judging. It's not making up stories about experience, as I'm sure you've noticed our minds like to do. It's being with things just as they are. A few simple examples, and you can extrapolate from these examples and see in your own experience what the mind does. We hear a sound, and almost immediately the mind will think bird, or machine, or whatever immediately there's, there's an interpretation that we put onto the sound. The mind that's knowing the sound, it's just hearing. It's just a moment of hearing. And then we think something about it. Those are two different moments. And we can apply bare attention to each. We can be aware of the hearing. We can be aware then of the thinking. The problem is when we conflate the two And we're under the impression that we hear a bird rather than hearing sound and thinking bird. Do you see the difference? If we really want to explore the meaning of this quality of innate wakefulness, of bare attention, we need to come back down, drop down into the utter simplicity of the moment's experience. Just hearing, just seeing, just thinking. It's the same thing as we become aware of our bodies and body sensations. We may feel a certain sensation in the body and think back, think knee. We don't feel knee. There's no sensation called knee. Knee is an idea, it's an image which we're putting, we're overlaying on the sensation. Mindfulness, bare attention, innate wakefulness, all of these terms refer to the simplicity of the direct experience in each moment. That's what we're practicing. That's what the training of the heart is. Now, in the beginning of our practice, the beginning of a retreat, even if one has practiced for quite a while, there's often the need for a conscious effort to be mindful. And we feel that, we feel that kind of effort to bring the mind back you know, over and over again after it's been lost. We connect simply with each moment's experience, whether it's a breath or a step or a sound. We simply return again and again every time we're distracted. That's the training of the mind, the coming back. It doesn't matter how many times we come back in an hour, it is the coming back which is the training. Toko Ergin, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, he said, and this is from a master of the great non dual tradition, he said, there is one thing we always need and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is on the lookout for when we get carried away in mindlessness. In all the traditions, whether it's Theravada, Mahayana, Zochen, mindfulness or bare attention or this quality of wakefulness, it's essential because that's what keys us to when the mind gets lost, when it gets distracted. We need that alertness. When you notice that there are certain patterns, certain repetitive patterns that carry you away again and again, it's helpful to give some spirulina to mindfulness <laughs> meaning <laughs> i was trying to think of something you know that kind of gives it a boost <laughs> meaning particularly with those repetitive patterns it's almost as if we can sit and we're keeping our eye out for them you know it's just it's just an added it's an added little boost Of alertness or attentiveness. We just keep our mind, our eye out, our inner eye out for the arising of them. Because if we can see them as they come, then they're no longer such a problem. We don't get so caught in them. It's much more difficult to extricate ourselves from their momentum once they've been going a while. So, again, with the repetitive patterns, you can actually enhance the alertness a bit. And it's tremendously helpful. As you practice, and the mindfulness gets stronger, and the concentration gets stronger, what we find is that they increasingly flow on by themselves. It doesn't take that much effort. We get into the flow of the stream of mindfulness, and it really does start working by itself. And when that happens, there's a much greater ease in the practice. There's less a sense of struggle. It's a little bit, and we could use many examples for this, but the one that came to mind was just you know learning to ride a bike when you were a kid. And at first, you're holding on really tight, and you're falling off on one side and falling off on the other, and there's the struggle to find the balance. But then at a certain point... You find the balance and you just ride. Right, and there's an ease and a joy in doing it, you're not struggling as much. In the same way, in the beginning, we struggle to be mindful, we struggle to come back. When they're well developed as factors, it's just going. We're in the balance. But there's a subtle point here that would be worth paying attention to. Because often what the mind does when it finds the balance is fixates on that state as if there's a perfect balance which we have to hold on to and we're afraid of losing it and so we're holding on tightly to that state we're thinking of as being balanced. That doesn't work. You know, when you're riding a bike, you're constantly... Constantly adjusting. And the balance comes out of the fluidity and ease of the adjustments. Sitting and walking is exactly the same way. It's not a question of getting it just right and then clinging to that or holding to that. It's not like that. The sitting or the walking, it's like we get into the rhythm and then this constant adjustment slightly more effort, of relaxing the effort. And so we feel this kind of inner ease of making those adjustments. At some point, as we found this ease, as we're riding the bicycles of our mind, and we're just in this intuitive flow, sometimes a little more attention on the primary object, sometimes it's more open and choiceless, without clinging to some view of how it should be, but trusting the movements of the mind, the intuitive movements. At a certain point in this process, we begin to make a very uh, profound discovery. And that is... that the nature of the mind is awareness. Awareness is not something apart from the mind. It's not something we don't have and need to get. We begin to experience for ourselves that the very nature of the mind is awareness. Well, as this becomes more obvious to us our practice, we see that awareness is simply something we come back to again and again. It's not something we have to look for. It's not something we have to create. It's not something we have to struggle to get. It is the very nature of the mind that we just come back to when we've been distracted. It's a very different way of practicing. The training, then, is not training to get something, it's training to come back. There's a great ease in that. There's a great relaxation in that. At all of these stages, you know, in the beginning stage where we're really holding on tight, and we need to be to find the balance, in the stage when it's happening more easily, you know, when we're making just the simple adjustments one way or another, to the stage of realizing that the nature of mind is awareness, at all of these different places along the way, it's really about learning the balance between active and receptive, between doing and non-doing. It would be interesting for you, as you said, if the mind is very scattered Then it takes a little more doing. Okay, let me really focus on the breath and there's that intention to stay with the breath. Then when you're feeling too tight or it's getting too constricted, too contracted, practice some non-doing of mind, of just sitting. Don't do anything. Trusting in the awareness which is the nature of mind. And you see that Things are being known all by themselves. So we play with this balance, active and receptive, doing and non-doing. It's very much like listening to music. When you're listening to music, you know, really music that you love, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great balance there of being alert and relaxed at the same time. These two are not exclusive of each other. And the art of meditation is exploring this balance of totally relaxed and undistracted. Relaxed and alert. Tranquil and alert. The key to finding this balance between doing and non-doing, tranquility and alertness, is in one very key understanding, which I've mentioned before, and I'll repeat again, because it's very hard to internalize, and yet it's the key to deepening our understanding. So I think it's really helpful to hear it again and again, to apply it in our practice. The key to finding the balance is realizing that we are not looking for or practicing for any particular experience. We're not looking for the breath to be a certain way. We're not looking for sensations to be one way rather than another way. It's all in how we're relating to experience. What's happening, whatever is happening, is fine. It's simply being aware of what presents itself. The problem is that we have a deep-rooted predilection for what's pleasant, and a (laughs) deep-rooted (laughs) antidelection for what's painful. So that habit just goes very deep and because of it, we find ourselves in a continually reactive struggle. But when we can touch the place even for short moments at first and then over time longer, we're just sitting in openness. We're just sitting in openness. Pleasant, fine, we experience that. Unpleasant, fine, we experience that. This tremendous power and tremendous strength in that ability. It takes training because our conditioning is not that. It's not only our conditioning with respect to pleasant and unpleasant, it's also our conditioning with respect to our conventional interpretation of experience. So often what we think of as being an accurate description of something contains within it desire and aversion. I'll give you just one example. It's when I was sitting with Upandita in Burma. My whole body was open and flowing and good energy and Great, except for one spot. You know, there was one place in my back that was just like this knot, and so I was practicing and kind of enjoying the open energy flow, but really working the knot to open it. So I go into Upaniṣad and I report this, and I reported it, as, you know, all this open energy, but there's this one block, you know, and it felt it just felt like an energy block he really got on my case for calling it a block. Because already in block, already just in that interpretation, there's desire and aversion. The concept we put on it often conditions our reaction to it. So it takes a lot of attentiveness and a lot of care not to overlay concepts but just to be with things as they are. Tightness is fine. Pressure is fine. Stabbing pain is fine. (laughs) When we see it just as it is, we actually can rest in openness. If we interpret it as a block or a knot or whatever, already we're in a relationship of trying to do something about it. It's very subtle how the mind jumps out of the openness you know, into some reactive, contracted state. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some tools, and these you're very familiar with. These is really just a reminder to you of things you know very well, of how to enhance... This quality of innate wakefulness, of bare attention, of mindfulness. Now how can, we, how can we help our training in this? Something that is of enormous help, and you've been doing it a lot already, so this is just by way of further encouragement, uh, is slowing down. Because when we slow down, we actually are able to feel things on more subtle levels. But e- even how we do this takes some care. Because you could be slowed down with the energy of holding yourself back. Okay, You know, it's like holding back the, the charging horses. Okay, I'm going to be slow, and you get tighter and tighter and tighter trying to hold yourself back. That's not it at all. It's not holding yourself back. It's settling back. It's relaxing back into the moment. It's taking the time and the interest to really see what's there. It's something like the Japanese tea ceremony where every movement is done with care, it's done with grace, and there's a beauty to it. Georgia O'Keeffe had a wonderful teaching about seeing, how to see. She said, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We don't have time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. I just love that appreciation of what can be seen or what relationship can be developed when we're not rushing when we really are settled back and we take the time to see the small things just as an example you know we might be reaching for the door or standing up from a sitting posture we might be mindful we might actually be aware that the arm is moving or that we're standing. And yet when we take the time, it's possible to drop from the awareness of simply knowing that we're moving to feeling the small elements, the small sensations within the movement. Now in the simple movement, of raising your arm to open a door, well, there's a world of sensation happening, and of all kinds of subtlety. There's a, whole, there's a whole world to explore. To practice through the day on that level of care, or at least at times during the day, tremendously helpful. The whole practice drops to another level. To see takes time in the sense of slowing down and taking care. When we do this, it really helps and supports the continuity of our awareness through the day, so we're less caught up in long times of distraction. The day becomes seamless. And we're not in the mindset that some things are more worthy of mindfulness than other things. It's like it's all the same. It's all this mind-body process, whatever activity we're doing. The Buddha, in the Satipatthana Sutta, he, he said it very clearly and directly. I'd like to read just a little bit from the Sutta. He said, whether going out or returning... The yogi acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, he or she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, he or she acts with full attention. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, or underrobe, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, he or she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, he or she acts with full attention. It's pretty comprehensive. The idea is to act with full attention, not to be rushing through things. The beauty of the retreat, the great gift of the retreat to each of you, is that you have nothing else to do. You have no other responsibilities except to act with full full attention. Well, what an amazing (laughs) blessing in this world to have this opportunity. You have no other responsibilities. This is your job. Again, this can be done not with a sense of coerciveness or heaviness. Mindfulness does not mean grimness. You know, because sometimes people get into this, you know, they're, okay, I'm going to be aware of every moment. (laughs) You know, and just everything gets tight and grim and heavy. That's not it. It's really just the enjoyment, you know, and, and the grace of being present. So it's to work with that, to remember that, to practice that. And it is a practice. Many times you forget, you lose it, but practice coming back to it. One other tool that I want to elaborate a bit, which we've talked about some, just to give a little more uh, fullness to it, that is the tool of mental noting. Some of you use it a lot, some of you don't use it at all. It's helpful to understand that it is a tool. It's not the essence of the practice, which is awareness and mindfulness. But the mental noting can be particularly useful at certain times. It's helpful if the mind is wandering a lot. You know, If you're sitting or walking through the day and you just find that you're lost in thought a lot, well, the note really helps connect you with the object and so it serves that, that process of connection sometimes the mind doesn't like to do it because it's too lazy You know, it takes a little bit of an effort to make the note but when the mind is very distracted making that effort, overcoming that laziness of the mind will really serve you, you know, it just grounds you, this is happening this, 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 this just connects moment after moment and the mindfulness builds up, the concentration builds up. But you have to watch out for a few things. You need to watch out for whether the noting is becoming mechanical. When you're noting out on the in-breath and in on the (laughs) out-breath. Even that is actually useful because It's a clear demonstration that the mind's not connecting. And without the note, the mind might not have been connecting, but we wouldn't necessarily know it. We might be kind of in that drift for much longer periods, but when we see that the noting is not in sync, so that's that's like an immediate signal. Okay, so then just stop and reconnect. Make sure the note is soft but it's not too loud. Watch the tone of the note so it's not heavy or judgmental. Soft, delicate. The image that I, that I like to use is the note should be like the wings of a dragonfly. You know, that, that really, you see right through them. The note should be that light. When the mindfulness and concentration deepen, you know, when you really are in that rhythm, the noting becomes less important when you really are mindful. You know, in the sitting, and the walking, then you might drop the noting for a while. Maybe just use it intermittently every once in a while. Just the kind of a check. There are two subtle levels that the noting can be used on. And this is really for many of you are experienced practitioners, it's kind of using the noting on a deeper level. You know, where you might not be using it regularly, but just occasionally. Sometimes it reveals aspects of identification or fixation on the object that you didn't even know was there. So you could be feeling, for example, the rising falling or the in-out or some sensations in the body. Every once in a while, just drop in a note. In, out, rise, fall. And just in the moment of noting, notice whether there's any subtle sense of further release. Because sometimes there's an attachment that's there, even when we're quite mindful and concentrated, just a subtle level of holding that we don't know. We're not seeing it, and an occasional note. And I felt this often in my practice. Just a moment of further dropping back, of letting go. Play with this. You know, it's all by way of exploring the nature of attachment and nature of openness. Okay, the last little piece for the noting. And again, this just becomes interesting when your practice is going smoothly, you know, when you're not really in a struggle. Sometimes when you use the note occasionally, for example, just hearing or or peace or calm or whatever, whatever note you're making, you can actually use the note and trace it back to the knowing mind out of which the note is coming. I'll try to explain it a little more. Suppose you're in a state of peace or calm and you're just there. You know, it's just a very peaceful state. And you're noting peace, peace, peace. It's like tracing back to what is that knowing mind out of which the note is arising, which is different than the peace itself. The peace is a a state, the calm is a state. What is it that's knowing the peace? What is it that's knowing the calm? So sometimes the note can actually lead us back to connection with that nature of knowing. play with it a bit. If it's too confusing, just forget about it. With all of this, again, the reminder that in the practice it doesn't matter what's arising. It can be Pleasant, it can be painful, it can be subtle, it can be gross. We can be as aware of abrasive sounds as we are of melodious ones. And to realize that is tremendously liberating. There was a time, this goes back many years in my practice when I was in India. Um, you know, in first studying with Munindra, I'd been there a few years. My practice had gotten to just a very nice place. You know, my mind was very concentrated and mindfulness was strong and the body felt light and it was sitting for long hours and it was great. Munindraji had the habit of bringing along every Western traveler that came to Bodgaya to meet Joseph, the yogi. <laughs> you know, and he'd bring these people along. And they just would, you know, travelers who wanted to chat and you know, how long have you been here? And I got so annoyed. You know, here's my teacher coming and kind of disturbing what felt like such good and deep practice. so I'd hear his footsteps and I'd oh no, no, don't be coming to me. <laughs> not a great way to be relating to your teacher. But he just, I, I really don't think it was like he had any, you know, any thought that this really would be good for my practice. He was just being you know. But what I found was after the first dozen times, so I don't know, you know, where I would really get upset and then it would take me a long time to get back in. At a certain point, my mind just let go of the what really was an attachment to the peace, the calm, the stillness, the silence. I, I didn't know the attachment was there until, until it was broken, and I didn't have it. Well, after a certain number of times of this, it really didn't matter. I just was sitting, and I was in this deep, quiet, calm space. When Ninja comes with these travelers, I'd get up and talk with them. They'd go, I'd come back and sit, and it was unbroken. And all of what made it unbroken was that I stopped trying to hold on to something. And realizing that the mind can be aware of anything. So we need to really learn that. You know, and you can you can practice that at any time where you think there's a distraction going on. Distraction is really another word like block. You know, It contains within it already desire and aversion. So whenever you think something is distracting, let that be a kind of a wake-up call, and just, okay, can I open to this? Can I be aware of this? Can I be mindful of this? Then nothing is a disturbance. This is tremendous practice for when you leave here. And so, you can really use this time in that way. It's understanding the mirror-like wisdom of the mind. The mind, the knowing, the awareness, it doesn't care, just like a mirror, it doesn't choose what it reflects and what it doesn't reflect. It just reflects whatever comes in front of it. And it doesn't have preferences. Well, our mind, the mirror like wisdom of the mind is like that. It simply knows whatever it is that's appearing. You know, and I think you can get a sense of the tremendous freedom and equanimity and openness as we cultivate that space. There's a very interesting part of the Satipatthana Sutta you know, which is the sutta the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness. In the third and fourth foundations, which it's the awareness, mindfulness of the mind, you know, in the angry mind, the concentrated mind, the still mind. the. And the fourth foundation is the foundation of mental objects, that's often how it's described. And what's included in that are things like the hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Eightfold Path. When you read the Sutta, what does it say? And this is a paraphrase. It says, we should be mindful of when the mind is concentrated. We should be mindful when the mind is not concentrated. We should be mindful when the mind is filled with desire. We should be mindful when the mind is free of desire. We should be mindful when there's equanimity. We should be mindful when there's not equanimity. It just goes through all of these various lists. Do you see the import of that? It's just saying be mindful of however it is. It's this way, fine. The mind is concentrated, fine. You're mindful of that. Mind is not concentrated, fine. You're mindful of that. And so it just opens up the practice for us, and we can settle back, we can relax into this mirror like wisdom. Simply being mindful of whatever's appearing, whatever's arising, things just as they are. It's so incredibly simple. But we have to trust it, we really have to trust that awareness. As I've said before, the teachings are incredibly simple and they're not always easy because of our habits of mind, because of our predilections, because of our attachments and aversions. There's a word in Pali which is often translated as effort and the word is virya, Virya, this effort, is a word that's in more lists of all the Buddhist lists than any other word. It's even, it's even more than mindfulness, it appears more often. Because we need to arouse the energy to decondition all, the, all our habitual responses. If we don't arouse the energy... We just are carried away in the habits of our conditioning. So we need we need to arouse that virya. But I think in the West, there's sometimes a problem with the word effort. You know, we do something when we hear that word that's not always that skillful. Because for whatever cultural reason, very often people hear effort and it becomes sort of ambitious striving or struggle or Becomes the cause of self-judgment. You now it's efforting rather than energetic. And that becomes a difficulty in practice then. It becomes a frustration. There's a less common translation, which I feel in some way is much more helpful to us as Westerners. And that's the translation of virya as courage. And courage comes from, the, the word, comes from the Latin root uh, for, the, for heart, core. And so when we think of virya as the strength of heart, right, the courage or the willingness to be present, that's a very different connotation than a struggling effort it's that strength of heart, it's that courage. Can I be present? Can I be open to whatever is arising? So where do we, Where does this courage come from? You know, where? How is it nourished in us? I think courage draws nourishment from one other quality which again as Westerners we're not noted for and that is the quality of patience. You know, everything in our in our society is so speedy. And it's very apparent, those of you who've been to Asia, just the difference in the speed of things, you know, is so noticeable. There's a contemporary a uh, Western poet and novelist, his name is Dennis Selah. He wrote something which, when I read it, I just, this was great wisdom in terms of the practice. He wrote, I have been hard at work now, for longer than I'd like to remember, on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly, Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough. But we moderns simply cannot grasp this. I think there's a tremendous wisdom in the statement, almost anything can be done if we proceed slowly enough. But so often we get discouraged by the enormity of a task or the length of a journey, And we become impatient with the difficulties that come up. And we really start to lose faith in ourselves. It's patience which reminds us that what's in front of us is just this one moment. What's in front of us is not an hour's worth of breaths. Or an hour's worth of steps. What's in front of us is half a breath. What's in front of us is lifting. We can be there for that. There's no problem with that. That's the quality of patience where we settle back, we proceed slowly enough, the pyramids get built. Just breath by breath, half breath, one step. Buddhahood gets built. I saw this a lot. As, as many of you know, I've been working and I've actually finished the book uh, One Dharma. But I spent some months intensively you know, working on it. It was very interesting because it's, you know, doing a book, it's a big project. And very often, I'd spend hours on a paragraph. You know, just one paragraph. Two hours, three hours. And if I let my mind think about how large the task was in front of me, you know, it would get very discouraging. But when I could let that go and just one paragraph at a time, another paragraph, one sentence at a time, and amazingly, just do it step by step by step, it gets done. It's exactly the same way with our practice. But we need that quality of patience. So we're just back in the moment, half a breath, one breath, one step. I like the image of building Buddhahood, just like the pyramids were built. We can do this. And the Buddha said, I mean, he said it's patience leads to Nibbana, patience leads to freedom. To the unconditioned. As we settle into this path, you know, with courage, with patience, settling into that quality of bare attention, of innate wakefulness. <laughs> slowly we begin to realize that our practice is not only for ourselves. And this is really a transforming time in our practice. It's not only for our own benefit, but our practice is really for the benefit and welfare of all beings. Well, how does this happen? How does sitting here watching our breath benefit anybody else? in two very simple ways. The more we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand everybody else. Because the nature of the mind, the nature of the body is the same. Our stories are different, our backgrounds are different, our conditioning is different. Pain is the same. Sadness is the same. Anger is the same. Love is the same. Suffering is the same. When we are attentive to the basic elements of our experience, as we learn about ourselves, we are learning about each other. We really are living in that commonality of experience. really gives rise to compassion for the suffering of others because we experience the suffering in ourselves. We know it. And we appreciate the possibility of freedom in others because we see that in ourselves. The great paradox of these retreats is that out of the silence and out of the solitude, comes an amazing feeling of connectedness because we're dropping down, we're dropping into what is common. And the second way our practice benefits others is through the transformation of how we are in the world. And it's so obvious. If we're kinder and more generous and more loving, the world is that much more kind and generous and loving. To the degree that we're less selfish, less judgmental, less angry, less envious. The world is that much less in all of those in all of those qualities. Our whole mind body is like a vibrating energy system. Really that's what it is. We think that it's these solid, discrete, separate entities. But as the practice deepens, we we really do open to this whole mind-body process. It's just vibrating energy. It cannot help but influence everyone around. This is the energy that's being shared, how we are. And so our practice inevitably benefits the world. There's just one further step in this, is when we go from realizing that our practice inevitably benefits others, to making the benefit of others the very motivation to practice. So from seeing it as a consequence, a natural inevitable consequence, we put that motivation right up front. We actually practice with the motive, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. And that, of course, is the beginning of bodhicitta that aspiration that our lives be for the awakening of all beings. What I found, and I've really found this to be a transformative shift, by putting that up front as the motive for my practice, the whole quality of right effort, the whole quality of the meditation begins to get very wide, very open, very connected, rather than confined. We're doing this not only for ourselves. And so we can practice bodhicitta in a very simple way, in very humble way. This is not grandiosity. Very, very simple. Maybe at the beginning of the sitting, you know, if you move to, just the beginning of the sitting, may I become awakened for the benefit of all. just sets the seed, it plants the seed. This is our motive. May I be awakened, may I be free for the benefit of all beings. And at the end of the sitting, is a dedication of merit that I particularly like. The end of each sitting or the end of each day, may the merit of my practice be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. So it's a way of connecting our own efforts May the merits of my practice be joined with the merits of all the wholesome actions of the three times, and together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. So it's like we gather it all up and dedicate it. Well, that's a powerful move of mind, of heart. this practice of bodhicitta the understanding of bodhicitta really connects us with everyone around us and provides this great energy or you know, juice or moisture or of love and compassion in our practice and in our lives. May my practice, may my life, be for the welfare, the benefit, the awakening of all beings. This is how we can practice. It's said for just a couple of minutes. Relax the mind, relax the heart. Simply rest in openness.